Hey everybody, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. This is part two of our conversation with Andre Henry. The conversation picks right back up um, in a story about Stone Mountain where Andre grew up. And we start talking about how we don't wrestle with our history, how we don't have a shared history which then also leads to a lack of a shared imagination. So I hope that you found part one informative. If uh, you remember to, and if you're able, uh, make sure you go over to Andre Henry's website and support the work that he's doing. Uh, This work takes resources Uh, It takes resources to produce music, um, to continue to write, um, and to lead social change. Additionally, on our website, we have posted, our website and our social media, we've posted links to anti-racism education to get you started. Uh, We have friends like Tina Strong, who... Uh, host with uh, co-host speaking of racism with Jennifer Kinney, Austin Channing Brown, and a plethora of other resources to get you started. And we hope that these conversations that we've been having are helping you find momentum in this time, in this movement, and that you're finding new ways to show up to the work and support black lives, knowing that in supporting black lives, we're supporting the health of all of us. We love you, and we hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. I come from Stone Mountain and I'm writing about like the ways that, you know, in Stone Mountain where I grew up, they they try to cover up all of like the racist content of its culture. Like when you go to Stone Mountain, uh, Stone Mountain Park, you go to their website. They don't mention anything about the park's ties to the Ku Klux Klan. Not one thing mentioned. Right. <laughs> Listen, the Ku Klux Klan the the resurgence of it, the Ku Klux Klan 2.0, mm-hmm. it it started on Stone Mountain. <laughs> the the Confederate monument that is carved into the side of that rock, which is the largest one in the country. First off, it's the largest carving of its kind in the world, and it is the largest stone. It is the largest Confederate monument in the country. <laughs> the person who had the idea for that monument, Helen Plain. She was a Klan supporter. She was the she was the president of the Georgia chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. She was a Klan supporter, and she suggested, "Why don't why don't we have Klansmen in their uniforms in the monument?" When she came up with the idea, she wanted the KKK to be represented in that monument that that is that is there. 
And the park on the website has no mention of it whatsoever. So what does this do to people's imagination in that area? This is why white people in Stone Mountain say that that monument has nothing to do with white, white supremacy. You know, I mean, it should be obvious. It's yeah. it's a carving of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Like that should be obvious enough. But if you're not going, this is a neo-Confederate theme park, point blank, period. That's what it is. But if the park won't even mention it, right? And it's not going to tell you its entire history. You're not going to learn that history in uh, in elementary school or yeah. in high school or whatever. You know, then there is this kind of ignorance that they can protect, and they do. Mm. 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 It reminds me, sort of. I I don't know, like when we start to examine like white supremacy culture, mm-hmm. it depends on not questioning not practicing curiously. Oh my gosh. The power of whiteness. Like if you ask whiteness, if you could be a superhero, what would your superpower be? They would say, whiteness would say invisibility. (laughs) That is the power of it, right? Is that, (laughs) is that, oh, the irony. Yeah. Oh gosh. It is so ironic, right? Like, because, and I was just saying this to somebody the other day, like, Colorblindness only works one way. Colorblindness only works with white people saying that they don't see color, but <laughs> but they do though, right? Like because yeah. like you know, as soon as the news reports that something bad happened, they're gonna say a black man, da da da, right, right, and then and they sure do see color when they start talking about you know black on black crime mm-hmm. and you know broken families and welfare and all that stuff. Offended? You don't see this beautiful Nubian chocolate skin. Oh. <laughs> You know, then all of a sudden they see color, you know, but then like, but the thing about color blindness is how it's used so that white people can keep whiteness invisible. So the thing that white people really don't want, like, because they don't mind seeing, they don't actually don't mind seeing blackness. They don't want their whiteness to be seen and named. So because as soon as you, they don't even like being called white people. Mm -hmm. They think saying white people is a slur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that because we often talk about privilege, white privilege and Alongside that and trying to have the conversation, I feel like there's always this uh, sort of notion of you don't have to necessarily feel bad about your privilege. We're trying to make you aware of it. Something you said earlier Uh made me want to ask you, do you think that privilege is used as oppression? And how might that look if the answer is yes? Do do I think privilege is used as oppression? Can be used as oppression or, or that the ignorance to privilege. Well, I think that this is right along the lines of what we were just talking about, right? Like the power of whiteness is the the denial yes. of it, right? Is is that the structures have already been made. White people who exist now who are like I didn't I didn't own any slaves or whatever. Well, you didn't have to. Like someone someone stole the land for you. Like no one's holding you <laughs> responsible for stealing the land. But the power, the power is in its invisibility. And so uh, I can't remember who, who used this analogy. It's so perfect. I'm so sorry I don't remember your name. But she talked about it as though like, you know, and I'm going to I'm going to probably obviously make some kind of variations on it. But OK, let's say your uncle gives you a car, you know, and you're driving it. And then you find out later on that like that car is that car is not paid for. Like that's somebody else's car is stolen. Right. 
Like, no one's holding you responsible for stealing the car, but like, come on, you're driving it. You know what I mean? Like, you're you're st- you're still using it, right? And that and that, in a sense, is culpability once you're aware of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's how privilege works in this society, where it's like, no one is holding you responsible for, you know, shipping Africans over here as cargo, you know. However, like, you're continuing to benefit from from a system that rewards you for being white in some ways, or at least advantages you because not all white people, you know, are doing that great, but still you're, you're not black in that society. No, you know, you're still, you're still benefiting from that. And that matters. And that's why I was talking about how, like, we can never talk about that if whiteness stays invisible. And I think that's why white people get so offended. We, I'm not, when I say that's why it sounds intentional, but I think that is part of why white people get very defensive about you seeing their whiteness. They don't like that. Mm-hmm. White people do not like it when you happen to notice that they're white. No. <laughs> not, not <laughs> Alright. Becca, as the uh, the uh, white person here. <laughs> How- She's a can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how's, how, how's, like, how's this sitting with you? And it looked like, I know you had some questions that you wanted to ask and everything, but like, yeah. Oh my goodness, I have so many thoughts. Let's just say, white people, listen to Andre Henry. Um, (laughs) So I keep going back to, so go back to the imagination for a minute. Yeah. And and when you were talking about that, I was really thinking about colonization Mm -hmm. and how our country was set up and the fact that we were, we being the white colonizers, were running away across the ocean to form our own freedom. But mm-hmm. instead what we did was um, just repeat our own trauma yeah. by creating that system again. But if you all were listening to what Andre said, I think part of it for me, and I'm trying not to <clears throat> go completely off the rails about this, but when white evangelical is formed about around white patriarchy, mm. There's a lot of obeying that is done by not only women, but by men as well. And mm-hmm. in the, within that context of obeying, so let's say not obeying the church or the pastor, but you're obeying God. And the English version of the Bible that was translated by white scholars has God as a male or with male pronouns. And there's a lot of obedience. And I think right there is where we, is one of the big, it's like, Cut our imagination is gone um, because of how the God we have learned about and been taught about. And I, I say that because I believe it informs everything else. Mm. I believe that's why our current government needs the support of Franklin Graham, needs the support of the evangelical church, because it cuts that imagination off and it goes for mm. obedience. Mm-hmm. And yes, white people, we don't like being told we're white and we don't, because we don't want to be wrong. Because if we're wrong, then we're alone. And if we're alone, then we don't count. Hmm. Because we have not learned to live in community. And the communities we live in tell us that we have to count as an individual. And if we don't count, we're out and then the community won't like us. And whether that's true about your community or not, that's the message that's been ingrained into us. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that it's very interesting you bring up the Bible because when we when we do examine like the ways that we imagine God 
you know, it is so controversial for some people mm-hmm. to think that God is first off not white. Like that's that's a big one. Like when James Cone, you know, said God is black. Yeah. You know, that was really that is so difficult for some people, you know. And we know that, you know, when James Cone says that God is black, that he's not talking about skin color. You know, he's talking about the fact that when God when God chose to be embodied, God chose to be embodied as a marginalized person. So mm-hmm. so when God when God if God is put in the position where God has to choose <laughs> a side, you know, which is also something that, you know, like I know that there are many white people who are like, God doesn't choose sides and stuff like that. And I'm like, mm. I mean, mm. if we're talking about the God of the Christian Bible, then yes, God does choose his sides. Yeah. You know, read the Exodus story again. Like God doesn't mm-hmm. God doesn't say, like, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm for Pharaoh and the Egyptians and for the Israelites. God can't be. Mm-mm. You know? The the slave owner is going is going to bed asking God to keep his slaves docile and submissive and obedient, and the slaves are asking God to help them fight, like to win their freedom, and God cannot say yes to both of those prayers, you know, so that's what that's what James Cone is saying, but the notion that like God is not white, I've seen I've seen that be infuriating for some people. And then don't even get started on God not being male, you know, (laughs) Um, because regardless of color, like there are many people who are committed to the idea that God is male and people like who have never even thought about this before. Like if you bring up the conversation, all of a sudden they get like really, some people get like really uh, anthropomorphic real quick. They're like, no, God is a man. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, I mean. God is a really? spirit. Like God has, like God, <laughs> does God have genitalia? Yeah. Like you know, this, you know, like how how are we how are we making this decision together? But it, I think that it speaks to the imagination that you're talking about. Yeah, and that has consequences in society. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing is that I don't think that people always recognize is that whatever people say that they believe about God has political consequences. It has social yes. consequences, you know, and the fact that we would reject, you know. So when I talk to white people who don't think they're racist, but kind of are um, about, you know, the Exodus story. For if instance, you're white, you're a racist, you know. is my opinion. <laughs> I'm a racist. So I've, t- I've spoken to some white pastors who who at one point were like, my biggest haters, uh, white evangelical pastors, about the Exodus story, they will do everything that they can to bypass the fact that the situation that the Israelites are in in the Exodus story is a, is a position of systematic oppression. It is systemic mm-hmm. oppression. You know, yes. it, it starts with the erasing of their history. It is the slave system that is put together. It is everyone in that society somehow working together intentionally or not, overtly or covertly, uh, manually or automatically participating in the slave system there. And God looks at that situation and says, I hate this so much. I don't even find it redeemable. And walks those people in their bodies (laughs) through the Red Sea to another piece of land. So it's a very material 
like view of salvation in this story, right? Like salvation cannot just be about, you know, Jesus calling you out into the water and drowning you so he can have your soul and take you to heaven. But um, actually like your literal body being moved to a place where you can have freedom, Mm -hmm. right? And I have white pastors who will bypass all of that and say, no, the reason why God freed them was because Jesus needed to come from the Israelites later and he was going to use the Israelites in his plan of redemption. And I'm like, so wait a minute. God says in Exodus chapter three, verse seven, six and seven, that, you know, I have seen their affliction because of their oppressors in Egypt. I have come down to rescue them and take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, like God specifically says why God is doing this. And you, white pastor, are telling me that you know God's motives better than God does? Mm-hmm. Like to go out of their way to do it. Like, this is basically making the the slaveholders Bible again, you know, to take these parts out that are inconvenient for you. You're right. right. Exactly. And I see the same thing with people refusing to acknowledge that there are there are images of God in the Bible that depict God as a mother hen, as a as a mother bear, you know, as as a as a many breasted one, you know, and like go out of their way to do this and. Religion helps us to to claim, religion helps people to be in denial about the fact that they are operating out of self-interest when they do that. There's a reason why you don't want to read the Bible in that way. Because you have an interest there. You have motivation there. It has consequences. And they don't want to be in touch with that. And religion can be such a powerful tool to keep people um, from telling the truth about themselves. Mm. Mm. There was something in in what you just said, and it kind of made some things create some synapses in my brain. I don't even know if that's the right word, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> this this notion of liberation as movement, yeah. Is is one of the underlying themes that I picked up on when you were just talking. And so it was for the Israelites to be freed from the bondage from the Egyptians, there had to be movement. They could not stay yes. where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think about things, uh, the Great Migration, you know, the South mm-hmm. became a dangerous yep. place mm-hmm. for black and brown bodies and so they migrated to the north where racism was still well and alive but not in the same way Mm -hmm. yep and then i think about today where we talk about revolution and creating movements and action yeah and so there's this notion or, or, or there's this thought that when i think about it that there's this fight to keep things the way that they are the good old days going back back to and sometimes reverting mm-hmm. but what i'm hearing from you is this notion that to experience liberation to to maintain that hope to experience freedom there has to be some sort of movement yeah i struggle with this because so years ago i did a series on the book of exodus called the god of the ghetto and where that series ended was me seeing an image of God in that story that was way more radical than I had 
thought before because like god like <laughs> listen god is like sabotaging stuff like <laughs> de- destroying crops and stuff oh. killing people you know like like that's a revolutionary picture mm-hmm. you know in a in a kind of traditional sense right it's like this is like pulling the guillotines out into the street (laughs) i'm like god is not playing here and 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 to judge that civilization as not being redeemable you know Mm. and opting for separation you know like i was like i did not i never thought of this story in that way but that is what happens in this story Mm. now bringing that into the more material sense Mm. right because I mean, there are some there are some issues when we think about the Exodus narrative, you know, and what the Israelites do as they enter Canaan and, you know, different readings and stuff like that, which, you know, we won't get into. So pulling that into the more our, our more immediate history, yeah. right, and our material future. The the thing that you mentioned of like movement, I think that movement in a certain way is definitely a key to liberation, but but the idea of moving in the way that kind of happens in the Exodus story just doesn't seem possible, you know? Like, when even when folks were escaping from slavery into Canada, the black people who were formerly enslaved, when they got to Canada, experienced white supremacy there, you know? Mm. And the nationalist movement that, that later would emerge with Elijah Muhammad and Marcus Garvey Stokely Carmichael and then the dream of leaving right um, there was a time when the suggestion was okay you had white people who were trying to send black people to Liberia uh, as a colony and that was a whole thing there were a lot of black people that were like we are not going anywhere that white people send us <laughs> fool me once you are not you are not getting me on a boat to cross the Atlantic Ocean again that is not happening right um, I will not be moaning today <laughs> yes, no no, I'm not gonna. I'm not boarding no ships that no white people suggested to get up, to cross the Atlantic Ocean again. And so you had some other black people that were saying we should go to South America, we should go to the Caribbean, we should go somewhere else in Africa, and we're trying to build a movement. And that's why they were initially calling for for reparations. Give us reparations so that we can get out of here and you know start our our, our own nation, or so that we can join another nation and not be poor. Well, the thing that we're not accounting for, and maybe that would have worked then. I don't know. I don't know what attitudes were then because also nation states in general are kind of a recent invention. Like everyone didn't think of themselves as nations and stuff like that until like around the world wars when we start, you know, that's when we start really solidifying nations in history. But at this point, it's like the reality is in the same way that those formerly enslaved people went to Canada and experienced racism, there's nowhere really for black Americans to go in the world where they're not going to experience anti-blackness. Yeah. You know, there's anti-blackness in South America. Brazil was once the the largest slave market in the in the in the Americas. You know, and there's been a lot of issues in Latinx communities uh, with anti-blackness. You know, especially for darker-skinned people. Um, Europe, <laughs> they invented racism. They like to forget. <laughs> you know, they like to think it's an American problem. <laughs> but, you know, now I will say Americans, Americans were like, you know, we, we took, okay, we saw, we saw Europe doing like racism and they were like Periscope and then Americans made it Facebook live. Like Americans perfected it, (laughs) you know, like like Americans definitely like 
you know, we perfected it. We perfected racism here. But we can never forget where it came from. So black people that even go to Paris now or Amsterdam or whatever, you want you want to follow in James Baldwin's footsteps or whatever, you're still going you're still going to experience racism there and anti-blackness there. And what are they going to do? They're going to say we're not racist because we're not American. That's you know every white person is like comparing themselves to the worst version of racism that they can to say that they're not a racist. So you're going to experience anti-blackness there, and it's going to be colorblindness there, just like in America. Hmm. You know, just just less mass shootings and less, you know, police police brutality. Um, you go to Africa and in in many countries in Africa as black Americans, the locals will call you whatever name they have for white person there. Because for some people, the logic is, well, you you grew up in that white country. You're shaped by whiteness. You think like a white person. So the prospects for moving somewhere like physically to find freedom just... I don't know. I mean, we're not going to get our own state you know, in, in America. They're not going to give that to us. You Do know, you want your own state but, here? I mean, if it's its own nation, oh, I yeah, don't know. Okay. Well, if it's your <laughs> you know? own government. Yeah. You know, so I've this is something I've really been struggling with lately is thinking about what is the vision for Black freedom? Because the truth of the matter is, as much as I love, you know, I have, there are white people in my life that are like family to me, like mm-hmm. lit- like sisters, brothers, they're like, you know, these are people that I trust and I love. There's a part of me that says the reality is that as long as white people stay in this place of denial about how pervasive and destructive and subtle white supremacy is and can be, that white spaces are not safe for us, mm-hmm. you know? And that, that's just the reality. And so based on that, you would say, well, maybe we're better off apart. But that's not really a practical solution. But then how can we be together? How can we be together in genuine relationship? And how can we be together and and all of us be free? It's possible. Like, oh, it's it's doable. But this comes back to the fact that white people have to launch their own mass movement to free themselves from whiteness. Yes. Mm. Yes. If that dream is ever going to be a reality. Yes. Because we don't have anywhere to go. Like the the only thing that if black people want to leave, if they want to move, which I do, I want to leave. I think that we are going to live in the world as fugitives in that way. Mm. Yeah. Do you hear that white people? Do you hear Andre another human beings saying that this planet that he has to live in it as a fugitive? And that's what I've been thinking about today. That's why like my that's why I was like really heavy when we first got on because I've been looking at like I've been looking at the naturalization process, the naturalization processes and citizenship citizenship processes in other countries and seriously considering like just getting out of America and realizing I I knew this already, but it just hits home when you're really taking it seriously. You start like you start learning different languages and stuff like that because you think you might go someplace. Yeah that I already knew that I couldn't escape racism and I couldn't escape anti-blackness, especially against someone who will be read as a black American. That's going to be anywhere that we go in the world. And so having to accept that if I were to leave America, because what what's happening in America right now is just tragic. It's, it's grievous that it would have to be because there's free healthcare somewhere else, mm-hmm. or there's a universal basic, basic income somewhere else, or, you know, something like that. It has to be because of what you will gain, mm. you know, in addition to help you cope. But you're just not going to escape it, mm. you know. And it's it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that 
you know, white supremacy is a problem that ultimately white people are going to have to solve, that they're going to have to dismantle. And this takes me back to earlier in our conversation where white people don't even like, they don't want their whiteness. To, they, it's not just that they don't want to be called white. They, they want for their whiteness to be inconsequential. And that's the essence of colorblindness is that, you know, they don't want, they don't like the idea that because they have lived in the world and believed themselves to be white, that that has certain implications about the way that they think and behave. And that the fact that they were socialized as white actually controls the way that they think and behave to some degree. Because white, all, all white people want to be individuals, right? right? And so, very much so. Yeah. You know, I read a staggering statistic of like 20% of white people in U.S. America think that racism is still an issue today. There you go. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> there you go. And and that is that is actually like to me right now looks like the key to racial progress is that as long as white people convince themselves that racism is no longer an issue and continue to live in this racist society and this racist structures, we're going to continue to see black people suffering the way that they are. Look at this COVID pandemic. Yes. Yeah. COVID, I told someone earlier today, coronavirus set itself down on tracks that were already built in this country by white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's traveling. It's it's running on channels that on paths that were already dug by by white supremacy in this country. And I told them it's like watching the map turn red again like we did in 2016. Except for this time, it's our blood. Yes. You know? It's it's these places where black people are clearly the minority. I mean, we're a minority in this country, but clearly these cities where we're clearly minorities making up 20 or 30 percent of the city population, but but accounting for 70 or 80 percent of people infected with the virus. You know, it's not that the virus is racist. It's just that we already had these disparities in income, these disparities in health that were bound to affect people differently. The poor cannot socially distance themselves. Those who are incarcerated, which are with the, in the prison population is disproportionately black. They, they can't, you know, I'm sorry, the poor can't shelter in place. Mm-hmm. The incarcerated can't social distance, you know, like these things were already set up for us. And I really do believe that a part of the reason why we don't have free health care and we don't have these welfare things in this in this country is because white people are so committed to the their imagination of what black people are like that they feel like we don't deserve those things. And so even though the, even though it would benefit everyone to have a universal basic income or uh, free health care for everyone, there are definitely certain black people, and I'm thinking of the book Dying by Whiteness right now, that there are definitely many white people who vote against policies that would benefit even them mm. and would benefit them more than black people. But the reason they vote against it is because they imagine that it would help black people. Oh, man. I mean, and like being a nurse and also seeing sort of the physical side of that disparity and knowing that you know so much of this goes back to our our body strength our ability to fight infection and disease goes back to the food that we eat uh the so and we think about food deserts and the populations that they disproportionately impact 
think Absolutely. about access to healthcare. Uh, so much, so much yeah. of this is people are waiting to the last second to go seek medical intervention. And then when you start to talk about the compound effect on that, so you look at heart disease, you look at diabetes, well, these are things in the medical community we call comorbidities. And so how this virus seems to be working is affecting those blood cells from binding to oxygen, which is causing that, yeah. that organ death. So you're already compromised in, in a diabetic state with how your vessels and veins mm. operate to where you're already uh, decreasing the perfusion to your vital organs. And we can transform that with the food that we eat when we stop putting pesticides in the ground, when we take care of the earth. <laughs> but these are things that we don't yeah. root into our imagination with. These are things that we don't think about. Yeah. And then we look at people and go, oh, you don't, you're not taking care of yourself. How can somebody take care of themselves? It's like Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King said when people say, pull yourself up by the bootstrap. What a cool thing to say it is to pull it for a man to pull himself up by the bootstraps when he has no boots. Mm. <laughs> Amen. Right? Right. right. And so with that, with all that we are enduring around the world and here in the United States, and knowing that you are still a person of hope, mm. what does salvation mean to you? Mm. To be honest, I don't think about salvation very mm. much anymore. You know, when I did, I would have said the same thing that I said when I wrote that series, the God of, the God of the Ghetto, is that that salvation has to do with addressing the whole person. You know, see, like. I was listening to Malcolm X earlier today, as one does, and it was the documentary The Hate That Hate Produced. I don't know if you're familiar with that. This is the way that Malcolm X was introduced to America, which is really unfair because they were trying to demonize the Nation of Islam yeah. and Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X. Because America's but, um, a Christian nation. He still says... <laughs> he was. He was still, it, he said something so profound because they, they were trying to say that they were indoctr indoctrinating children into black supremacy. And um, so they asked, you know, they asked Malcolm X about the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And Brother Malcolm said that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was the white man. <laughs> he had no shits to give. <laughs> <laughs> he said he said that the serpent was the white man. Now this was early, Brother Malcolm. So you know he, Brother he went Malcolm, through an evolution. He stopped calling white people. <laughs> yeah, he stopped. He stopped calling white people the devil later on in his life. But at this point in his life, he was still calling white people the devil. So, but that wasn't the profound thing that he said. The profound thing was they asked, "Is that what you teach the children?" And he said, if you ask these children, where is hell? They're going to tell you that hell is in the same place that they're catching it. Mm -hmm. And that was really profound to me because that is when, that is how I started thinking when I started speaking up about justice more and more. And I was still more committed to addressing it in a theological way. I'm still working out what my relationship is to theology, but when I was more committed to that lens, the idea that hell is a place that people create for each other mm. on earth. Hell is the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Hell is the occupation of 
black and brown cities hell is a food desert hell is an america that won't prepare for a pandemic that could kill hundreds of thousands that made more sense to me and the idea that god made this place to be holy to be sacred god created this world as god's own garden of Mm. bliss that God created this place as God's own home and is sharing it with us is still compelling to me. And to me, salvation in that regard means that people would be free to enjoy the fruit of that garden, you know, from whatever it is that hinders them, you know, freedom is being able to not just not just like pray this prayer and have Jesus in your heart and to feel confident about what happens after you die you know it's looking back over the red sea and seeing those people who held your freedom hostage and singing and dancing with your people saying you know he has thrown the horse and rider into the sea mm. you know mm. the thing that i i i just kind of want to end on too within that is I think in a lot of these conversations, and it's not my goal necessary, necessarily here to provide comfort to whiteness, but one thing that I, I love about the, the Exodus story is that Egyptians left too. Yes. <laughs> right? And this is what I've been saying. This is what I've been saying to people, right? It's like, I definitely believe that as far as evangelicalism is concerned, yeah, an Exodus is the answer. Like, people mm-hmm. need to leave. Like, if I could just walk into the middle of a service at North Point or Hillsong or whatever and raise my staff and be like, yo, you know, (laughs) yeah, I would, I would do that. Like I, I would need a clear directive from, from God, but I would do that. But I have been talking about this and I wrote an article that was about the ongoing black exodus from evangelicalism. And I pointed out that like the Bible says that a mixed multitude left Egypt. Mm. a mixed multitude and so you know a lot of a lot of folks who talk about separation okay so i actually have been meaning to write about this and i don't know how to put it into words in writing so it that means it probably come out better when i'm saying it because that's usually how it works for me there are some people who make folks who participate in these oppressive systems they make them they make them into out and out villains um I had a friend who was studying psychology at Fuller who said that in some ways, like when we tell stories, we tend to have flat people and we tend to have round people where flat people are literally people that we have truncated into the worst, you know, the the thing that they did that hurt you or the worst version of themselves. We flatten people in that way. And when we talk about people who participate in systems of oppression, we tend to flatten people. We want to create this binary where some people are good, some people are bad. Some people are oppressed, some people are the oppressors. And that's just not how life is. Life is way more nuanced nuanced than that, you know. There are black people that participate in mm-hmm. anti-blackness, you know. There, there you know, there are, there are people of color who do that. There are white people who walk the trail of tears there with with the natives um, to those lands that they were exiled to. There are white people who fought for the end of slavery to the point of giving their lives. There are white people who were brutalized in the civil rights movement, you know. And so I'm just saying like it's not it's not that simple. You know, I know that that makes it very simple. And the, the danger in doing that and flattening people in that way is that 
you end up becoming the type of person who says those people are not good for anything but doing bad and then the only conclusion that you have is that those people are now disposable Mm -hmm. right and so now you end up perpetuating violence against them right what i love about the idea that a mixed multitude leaves egypt is that i'm saying there is hope for people who participate in these systems and that is like white people have to find some way to either to either abandon whiteness Mm. altogether or to make whiteness mean something else Mm. you know but one way or another the way the way that we get out of this or the way that white people can look at this and say well you know is there any hope or you know do you believe that there's hope for white people yes your hope is in joining the exodus Mm -hmm. your help your hope is in leaving with with those people of color and and black people who say yeah this structure is not built for equality it's not built for equity it's not built for justice for all and it can't be you know and you get to go and build something else you know Mm -hmm. damn white people put down your whiteness and I know the challenge there is that white whiteness is a technology that is like from like a sci-fi movie or something like that. It's like it's a technology that is bonded to people's biology. It is not biological. It's not a biological fact, but it is a technology that has been fused with people's identity. So because people really believe that they are white, they think that abandoning their whiteness is a call to self-annihilation. You know, they think that racial justice will destroy them. And I don't know what to do with that, Mm. you know. My question to those who would say the racial justice will destroy them, I'm curious what you're afraid of. What what's the fear? What's being destroyed? What what in your life is being destroyed because of racial justice? And if you start breaking that down, and even to the point of looking back at your childhood, break it down. And we had a conversation several months ago with Hillary McBride, and she talked about how our trauma is imprinted upon our DNA. And I believe that that includes the trauma that we as white people put on black people. And we still carry that. And to say that, and I believe that that is part of our racism. And I do believe that we are all racist. And I'm not ashamed to say that because we were raised in a culture. You cannot say that you are not racist if you were raised in white culture. And I've seen in you, Becca, that that's been a point of liberation for you to be able to say that and then to be able to move through it and it not be this point uh, of paralyzation for you. And so thank you for being an example of that and and for doing so much of this journey publicly too, even within that. Um, because you are participating in in that three percent of society that that creates and fosters change. So yeah. And I, I appreciate that, but if there's so much work to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I don't want that to intimidate anybody, but the realization is only the beginning. First step is awareness. Mm-hmm. My gosh, my gosh, my gosh. We didn't even get to like music, Andre. <laughs> 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 but this... I know, I talk a lot. Oh, it's, 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 
you know, I, I was telling a friend earlier today, he was asking me how my night was at work, and I was just like, it sucked the end. <laughs> and <laughs> and he was like, that's it? And I was like, yeah, it's like the things that things that don't bring me joy, I don't have much to much time and energy to spend on it. But the things that, that fulfill me right. and bring me joy, I could probably talk about that all day. So it's been such a pleasure to be in your presence, uh, to bask in mm, your energy, yes. to be mentored by you, to learn by you, mm. to have an example set by you in this work. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, y'all. I really appreciate it. I, you are probably one of the people that I quote the most when we interview people. <laughs> I was like, well, Andre Henry said. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I just, I really, we're not trying to butter you up. Like, it. I'm a two. That's what we do. So it's just, I, I kind of am. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Slap well, Tommy, maybe <laughs> slap it on that butter. <laughs> but my individualism says. Just <laughs> 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 no, shit. Oh, but no, seriously. Like, I don't know if you realize the power that your willingness to embody hope and be an anti-racism educator within your being, that's an amazing gift. My last point of butter. Uh, I appreciate Brene it. Brene Brown said in an interview, and I'm going to probably butcher this, that courage is the ability to show up or lead, show up who as who you are and lead from the heart. So thank you for being so courageous, Andre. <laughs> in in this work thank and you. thank you for being a friend thank you for being so welcoming uh thank you for being you and thank you for I appreciate it how can how can people find you i mean google andre henry it's pretty easy but <laughs> tell us how can we get in contact with you my friend yeah the best place to find me is on my website andrehenry.co um, I write a weekly email about social change there that people can sign up for and everything I'm doing goes out there. So when I have a new podcast episode, when I release a new song, when I write a new article, it all goes on on that email address. I mean, email list. Mm. All right, my brother. And y'all, Andre also has uh, a podcast, Hope and Hard Pills. Um, and one of, he was talking about earlier in um, our conversation here about Oh, I'm going to butcher his name. Sergey Pop. Serge. Papa. Serge. Thank you. <laughs> and you got a chance to interview him. And I did. that episode is phenomenal. Y'all should go find it. It's such an, it was like such an honor to, to do that. But I really, even beyond that, it's like the information that he is sharing is vital. <laughs> like I think everyone in the world should know it. Yes. All right, Andre, till the next time. <laughs> Thanks for joining us right. on Permission to Be. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com.